Well, my thanks to the worship team um, for presenting to us songs of worship. And we thank you, Ben, for your prayer and reading the scriptures. And again, everyone here, thank you all again for your support and your prayers for us. We truly thank God for all of you for caring for us through your prayers. If you remember, three weeks ago I stood here and give you uh, three reasons why we're going to Ireland and Czech. Three strategic purposes for our trip. First one was to encourage our missionaries. Secondly, was to unite our hearts with our missionaries, our minds and our hearts concerning the work of God. And the third purpose was for God to stretch our hearts for the work of missions and evangelism. Well, by the grace of God, we come back to you with good report. By the grace of God, we can say that the mission was accomplished. Our first goal to encourage the missionaries, I believe we, we were, by the grace of God, successful in doing that. We had times of, as Elder Bob shared, sweet fellowship with the Coils and the Smiths. Uh, times where we laughed together or we wept together. Um, they were, we were so encouraged by their faithfulness in the midst of difficulty and trial and in a strange way, they're encouraged to hear about our pains of ministry, our difficulties and our trials. We shared with them how Bob went into heart surgery last year and my dad's ailment, and yet our steadfastness in the work of the Lord here. We shared with them the difficulties that we faced in ministry in the past few months, and they were so encouraged by that. So we kind of milked it a little more <laughs> and kind of shared how difficult it was just to encourage them. And that was really neat. Uh, each couple uh, with Ireland, Tim and Barbara, we gave them a date night where we babysat their three young children so that they didn't go out and have a dinner to themselves and really talk and fellowship together. And as Tim was going out, he had a tape set on infant baptism and believer's baptism that he was going to listen to in the car. And I stopped him and confiscated those tapes. <laughs> Tim, what are you doing? You're not going to listen to any doctrinal tapes tonight. You're going to talk to your wife, and you're going to fellowship with her. And they came back, and Barbara was very thankful for you know, towards me. I think she owes me something for that. And Peter and Sonia, the other couple that's working with them, is David and Sharon. Um, you know, Bob and I had to almost get violently physical with them to make them go out on this date night because they were so gracious. They wanted to serve us. They wanted us to go out where they babysit our kids. So Bob, Bob and I thought about that for a minute, but that's not part of our purpose. So we, we really wanted to, wanted to force them to go. They went out and had a great time, I believe, and was able to encourage them. We encouraged them by our gifts from our church. They're all wearing our sweatshirts all over Czech, all over Ireland, right, by our ministry to them. And secondly, God really knitted our hearts together all the more with the Coils and the Smiths by seeing firsthand their work, their labor, just, um, just their commitment to the Lord's work in a difficult field. I mean, Bob and I and the families as well, we're, we're there with them. We're in the trenches with them, and we're holding the line with them. So we thank God for that. And, and God definitely stretched our hearts where our vision is greater than just Orange County or California, United States, but it's global because our God is a missionary God for the whole world. Well, there's just so much to share with all of you. Our hearts are just bubbling over with good reports that we want to share with each and every one of you. But time does not permit us. Next week, during second hour, during a communion service, we will share pictures. You don't want to miss that. 
right, some good pictures and share more about our work and their work next week. Well, one more quick announcement and we'll get to our study. Um, next week will be our summer missions team offering. We're not going to have any other um, mission, uh, fundraising within the church. We don't want to like sell socks and shirts and all these things to like nickel and dime you guys. This is one opportunity to give to the missions and that's it. So we'd ask you guys to pray. Pray for them. Pray for these precious men and women. And if God leads you to support them next week. Well, let's get to our study this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll start by sharing with you a story of, about what occurred with us in Ireland with the coils. You know, you, we've all heard this before, that you never appreciate what you have had unless, until you lose it. You never truly appreciate what you had or what you have until you lose it. Well, in Ireland, by God's sovereignty and providence, we had no running water for five days. For five days, we had zero running water. So Seren, myself, Elizabeth, and the whole Coyle family, they have three children. We had to be very um, good stewards of water in the household. And so I didn't shower for five days. That was real, real missions. <laughs> but what was more difficult was we're in a very small home. Surin didn't shower for five days. Or five days. Surin didn't shower. Elizabeth didn't shower for five days. Tim didn't shower for five days. Sonia and the children. There were like nine people in one home without showering for five days. It was cold, but the windows were open. Let me tell you that much. You know, we used drops of water to brush our teeth in the morning. I couldn't wash my face. Just my eyes. <laughs> the water was so sparse. Just my eyes. At the fifth day, when, when we finally got running water, man, it was so great. It was just so precious. I will, I'm going to appreciate running water at least for a few more days now with our experience. Well, in light of that, do we consider how important the resurrection of Christ is to our Christian faith? Right. Are we taking it for granted? The resurrection of Christ, how important it is for us believers there seems to be in the church today an imbalance that is related to the Lord's resurrection. This trend exists below the radar, but very subtle, but it is clearly present. It, it has pervaded the thinking of many Christians and has unhinged Christianity from the Scriptures. This unhealthy balance is an emphasis, a right emphasis on the crucifixion of Christ, but at the same time, a lack of emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. There seems to be, in a sense, a neglect of this important doctrine where the resurrection of Christ is marginalized, it is viewed by the church as less significant and definitely less relevant to our Christian faith. Many see a great relevance to, to Christ's crucifixion, but not the resurrection of Christ. And there are many reasons for this. And one reason is, Christ's crucifixion is rightly seen as Christ's work for us. He loves us. He died for us. So it is a good thing to meditate on. Good thing to think about. It gives us the warm and fuzzies, right? But Christ's resurrection points to His identity as God. As His authority, His glory, His majesty and power. And that's a little uncomfortable. Because it points to His lordship over us. 
So we rather think about what Christ has done for us and His love for us, and yet maybe neglect, put along the side, who Christ is. Secondly, as believers, maybe we use the crucifixion as an excuse to sin. Right? Think about that for a little bit, for a moment. Or because the death of Christ, He died for our sin, we, because of our sinfulness, we allow ourselves to toy with temptation and even justify sin because, hey, Christ died for sin. But we don't want to think about the resurrection because God says that the same power that God raised Christ from the dead is alive in our hearts. So we are truly free and we can choose to obey God. That's a little more uncomfortable for us. So maybe that's why we neglect um, the resurrection of Christ. But perhaps another reason is that believers oftentimes struggle to see the significance of the resurrection of Christ to our daily Christian lives. We fail to connect those two dots. Here is the resurrection. Here is our Christian life. Here I go to work five days a week. I have family issues, personal issues. I have financial issues. Here is the resurrection. And we fail to connect and apply theology to our lives. We don't see the relevance. We don't see the significance. Well, today's passage shows us that the resurrection of Christ is directly significant to our Christian lives. Apostle Paul in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians demonstrates that the resurrection is essential to our Christian faith. It is foundational to our faith in Jesus Christ. He shows that genuine faith in Christ is impossible without the resurrection. It's not a possibility. You look closely at this passage and you will see Paul passionately making this case that there are disastrous consequences to the Christian if the resurrection never occurred. If the resurrection was non-existent. Let's go to the passage this morning, starting in verse 13. The Apostle Paul gives us seven conditional statements that reveal to us seven disastrous, seven tragic results of denying the resurrection of Christ. The first conditional clause is found in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul is saying, as some of you claim there is no resurrection, Paul says, then not even Christ had been raised. There were some in the Corinthian church, false teachers, who taught and believed that the resurrection already occurred. And it was a spiritual resurrection. They spiritualized the whole thing. They denied the bodily resurrection of Christ and said that it was just a mere spiritual resurrection. So for believers, the bodily resurrection is not important. In fact, resurrection doesn't exist. It's all in the spiritual realm. And then they went a step further. Therefore, the sins that we committed in the flesh was of no consequence. That we can still live in sin. We can still lie, cheat, and steal. Commit impure acts. But because spiritually we're reborn, we're born again, it doesn't matter. Well, Paul makes seven hypothetical statements. If what you believe is true, the dead are not raised, here's the first consequence, and it is tragic. If the dead are not raised, the first consequence is that Christ is not raised. 
Jesus is not risen. It's a very simple argument. If the dead cannot rise, then Christ did not rise. Paul is saying, if you deny the resurrection, then you are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is saying that that denial is not a minor thing. It is not a minor doctrine. It is not a secondary aspect of the Christian faith. You know, Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy about two men, Hymenius and Alexander. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he handed over to Satan, said that Satan will teach them not to blaspheme. And he says that he's seen in these men the devastating effects of someone who denies the resurrection. It caused these men to shipwreck their faith, to destroy their faith. When they denied the resurrection of Christ, their faith was destroyed. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, he says, Their teaching spreads like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken the had taken place, and they destroyed the faith of some. They've not only shipwrecked their faith, they're destroying the faith of others. Apostle John gives similar warning in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. John says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh, and that Jesus rose from the grave, is not from God. 2 John 1.7 Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, meaning they deny Jesus Christ rose physically, literally, in the flesh, is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Paul carries their doctrinal belief to its logical conclusion. If you believe the dead are not raised, then you deny the resurrection of our Lord. Then he takes it to a second logical step. The second step is found in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then consequence, then our preaching is in vain. Then preaching on the gospel is totally meaningless. The Greek word for vain here is kanon, which means empty, pointless, fruitless. Instead of the gospel being the power of God. Instead of the gospel being the dunamis, the dynamite that converts lost souls, grants them eternal life. Instead of it being the living and active word of God that penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Instead of the gospel being the perfect law of God that revives the soul, Psalm 19, that converts the soul. Gospel without the risen Lord is reduced to what? Empty words. Words without power. Meaningless talk. Arbitrary. A man's opinion. You know, Bob was talking about the English classes where we went, and we talked to these students about the gospel. Well, we separated into small groups, and it was Easter. It was perfect. And John, Peter had us read John 11. And we're discussing Easter with our students. And I was discussing with one of the students, his name was Charles, and he says he believes in reincarnation. And I said, why, Charles, do you believe in that? He said, because he believes in karma. 
that you're paying for the sins of the past. Well, I said, Charles, why do you believe that? And he said, well, because I believe in destiny. I believe that we all have a destiny ordained by nature. And I asked him again, well, Charles, why do you believe that? He was getting a little irritated, but I asked Presto, well, where do you get that from? I asked why several more times. You know what he said? That's his opinion. There is no basis for that. There is no truth to that. It's arbitrary. He made it up. He just agrees with what he wants to agree with. And he said, rightfully so. It's just my opinion. I said, Charles, that's exactly right. What you believe, that's your opinion. What I believe, that's my opinion. All men, it's just opinions. What is the truth? What does Jesus say? I am the truth. John 14, 6. And he proved that he was truth by his resurrection from the grave. By his resurrection. He declares that the gospel is not just empty words. It's not just arbitrary opinions. But it is the truth. That's what Apostle Paul is saying. If you proclaim the gospel and yet deny the resurrection of the dead and thereby deny the resurrection of Christ and the gospel, you're undermining the message. It's reduced to an opinion. That's what the gospel is reduced to without the risen Christ. If you tear out the gospel, tear out the resurrection from the gospel, you tear the heart out. The gospel is void. Gospel is empty and meaningless. Without the resurrection, preaching the gospel is for nothing. Instead of it being the good news, it is awful news. It is bad news. Nothing worth preaching. So Paul is saying, he's making a lawyer's case. I mean, incredible logic here. You say there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then our gospel is empty. The third, if Christ is not raised, the third implication is, our faith in Christ is worthless. Verse 14. Without the resurrection, the preaching of the gospel would be meaningless. It would also make our faith in Him worthless. Same word, kanon, the Greek. Empty, fruitless, void, no purpose. Think about that. Without the resurrection, our faith is a joke. It is, it is futile. You know, our, our worship this morning, our prayers, our devotions, study of the Word, our Christian service, all of it, it's for nothing. At the end of our lives, we will bitterly cry with the psalmist. In Psalm 73.13, he said, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. I washed my hands in innocence for nothing. Without the resurrection, we will join him in that. We did it for nothing. I prayed and I studied scripture. I went to church. It was all in vain. Do we see the importance of our Lord's resurrection? It gives meaning to our faith. It is the heart of the gospel. It is our hope and anchor to our souls. Without it, our faith is bankrupt. More than that, not only that, the fourth consequence. Look at verse 15. Moreover, 
we are to be found, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we witness against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Clear argument, clear logic. Paul says, if Christ is not, was not raised, we are false witnesses. We are false teachers. We are proclaiming Christ is raised when in fact He did not. Then He is saying, you're not to esteem Me. You're not to imitate Me nor admire Me because I'm a liar. Him and all the apostles, Peter, John, Matthew and the rest, are the worst kind of deceivers. Because they are men who have perverted the truth and they made God out to be a liar. They said God raised Jesus when God didn't. They've called God a liar. They're perverters of the truth. They have misrepresented God. They have fabricated this resurrection of Christ. And so they, they are false teachers. And what's worse, we're false teachers. I'm a false teacher. You're listening to an empty gospel devoid of power that is mere opinion from a false teacher, a liar, who've learned from other liars in the scriptures. So if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. Christ is not raised. Gospel is nothing. And the dead are, if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. We're all false teachers. The fifth consequence. Now this is a, this is a difficult one. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. Our sins remain. God's judgment awaits us. You know, our, our Lord on the cross, He made seven statements. Seven incredible and wondrous statements. The last thing He cried out was one word, Tetelestai, John 19.30. That word means it is finished, perfect tense. It is done. Um, this word was used in commerce at the time. When you get a receipt, they would stamp, I don't know if they stamp it, they would write it, Tetelestai. Meaning paid in full, accepted, no debts, you're good to go, you're clear. When our Lord was saying that, He was saying, the payment has been made. Payment has been given. It has been offered to God, it has been accepted. Full price of our sins was accepted, our sins are forgiven. His resurrection confirms that claim. His resurrection was God's way of saying, check is cleared. It was indeed accepted. Well, if Jesus did not rise, that means the check bounced. Insufficient funds. You ever do that? You know, you buy a lot of things in a market or a store and you offer your credit card. Long line of people behind you. They're all looking at you. They turn the card back to you and said, rejected, declined. Well, that's what's happening. If Christ did not rise, we are st- still in debt. The penalty has not been paid. We are still in our sins. The forgiveness of our sins is a myth. We are deceived. After we die, what awaits us is not glory. It's not a warm welcome coming to my kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. What awaits us is God's wrath, God's anger, and eternal hell. Dante wrote that above the gates of hell was a sign that read, Abandon home, 
all you who enter here, end quote. Well, that applies to us. Because if Christ is not raised, we have no hope. We're hopeless. What could we do to have our sins removed? What could we do to pay our debt? Nothing. Only judgment awaits us. All our sins, all our wickedness, the many, many countless sins that we committed are still held before the sight of a holy God and God's judgment looms over our shoulders and we are helpless to do anything about it. That is our current condition if Christ is not raised. And it just gets worse. Here is the sixth consequence in verse 17. Not only are we lost forever, but so are all the Christian brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All former believers are lost. Meaning every New Testament Christian that we esteem, that we seek to emulate in our faith, they're in hell. Apostles John, Peter, and Matthew, Paul, Timothy, Barnabas, all have perished. They've been judged by God. Not only that, every Christian in church history have perished alongside them. Men like Augustine, Jan Hus, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, all these eminent minimum of God have perished as well. You know that Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith... Hebrews 11, it should be retitled Hall of Fools, the Hall of Idiots, if Christ is not raised, because there is no hope. There is no resurrection, then all believers throughout history have perished, they are lost. And then here, come, here we come to the final one, verse 19. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, if Christ has not been raised... Here's the final consequence. Then we are of all men most to be pitied. We are the most pitiful people on this earth. Pitiful means miserable. We are the most miserable of all men. We are wretched. We're blind, naked, spiritually. It's a cruel joke, a cruel cosmic joke, and the joke's on us. All that we do, all that we say, our whole lives are based on a lie. We have lived, served, sacrificed, left home and family for a lie. We have been utterly deceived and deceiving others. We are to be pitied more than all men. So what's that state with the resurrection? Everything. It's not a long train where the end of the line is the resurrection, it's the caboose you attach to the end. No, it's the heart of our gospel. What's at stake? Everything. You know, I read a statement by a pastor who argued, hey, even if Christ was not, was not raised, it's okay because Christians are better off than others. Because we've embraced a great ethical system where we live moral lives. We had good families. We're honest, we work hard, and we have good time at church. So we're better off than others. It's still better to believe in Christ, even if resurrection didn't occur. I would say no. A thousand times no. If Christ was not risen from the grave, we are to be pitied among all men. Men who live the most pitiful, miserable lives, we are worse than them. 
Now, let's make a turn here, people. Discouraging, right? If I end my sermon right now, man, what kind of Easter sermon is this? But note, Paul, and you can't miss this, Paul is making hypothetical statements. He's not declaring truth statements here. He's making if. If this were the the case. But here comes a very important conjunction. A very important transition in Paul's thought in verse 20. But now, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Look at those first two words in verse 20. They're so important. The first one, that conjunction, but changes the discourse from a series of negative hypothetical statements in the resurrection to a positive declaration on the truth about Jesus Christ that He rose from the grave. After writing seven conditional statements that, that demonstrate the effects, the consequences of denying the resurrection, Paul turns to the truth about the resurrection. And the second word now marks the logical contrast to the previous negative statements. He's emphasizing that now I'm talking about truth, that He has indeed been raised from the dead. Jesus is not dead. His body has not seen decay. He's alive. He's risen. He's at the right hand of God at this moment. Therefore, all the consequences are exactly the opposite, right? If Christ is not raised, seven consequences. If, because He is raised, exact opposite for the consequences. Our preaching of the gospel is not in vain. It's not empty. The gospel is not my opinion or man's opinion. It's not arbitrary. It's truth. It is the power of God that saves lost sinners. It is the God-ordained way of setting sinners free from sin and rescuing them from the pit of hell. Jesus is risen. Our faith is not in vain. Our faith in Christ is powerful. It's effectual. It is our faith that has saved us from the enemy of sin and death. It is our faith that caused us to mature in Christ, to grow in holiness. It is our faith that empowers us to, to serve Him. It's our faith that empowers us to commit all of our lives to live for His glory. Because Christ rose, we are not false witnesses. We are not liars. We are not following a liar. We are testifying to the truth that Jesus Christ is God's Son. That He came to earth as a man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. On the third day, He rose from the grave. And that whosoever should believe in Him will have eternal life. That is the truth. And we are the the heralds of that truth. The declarers of truth. We can truly rejoice this day as true believers. Because our sins are truly forgiven. By Him rising from the grave, God is saying, accepted. Debt is cleared. The truth is that our names, believers, are written in the book of life. And the truth is that all believers throughout history and throughout time are in heaven. They are saved. All the apostles, the eminent men and women of throughout church history have been forgiven and accepted by God. The truth is that Jesus Christ 
is alive right now, sitting in the right hand of God, intercessing for all believers, the final consequence. Therefore, Christians are not to be most pitied. But true believers are to be esteemed because they are blessed by God. Psalm 32.1 Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's a blessed man. Wow, your sins are gone. Your debt is canceled. Right? I mean, for those of us with mortgage payments, if someone said, you know, student loans, I don't know, student loans. Man, I said, it's wiped away. Zero balance. How much more are people will say, You're blessed. The government forgave you of your student loans? Right? B of A came and just let you go? Well, God said, Your sins are gone. How blessed are you? That's what the Bible says. Christians aren't the most pitied, they're the most blessed. Awesome truth. Now, go with me to verse 58. Paul proclaims these glorious, this glorious truth the resurrection of Christ, and how relevant it is to us, how significant it is to us in our Christian faith. And then, with pinpoint accuracy, there are smart bombs, right? With pinpoint accuracy, he applies this truth to us. Verse 58, Therefore, in light of the resurrection of Christ, therefore, Paul says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is the great exhortation that closes this chapter of the Lord's resurrection. Paul drives this great, grand theology of the Lord's resurrection, and he, with pinpoint accuracy, he streamlines it, focuses it, focuses it on two exhortations. He says, this great doctrine of the Lord's resurrection is not given to us to create the woman fuzzies. It's not given to us that one day a, a year we come and think about the Lord's resurrection. It's given to us that it might have these two effects, these two implications upon our lives. What are they? Number one, first, be steadfast and be immovable. Right? Both point to the same thing. Steadfastness refers to being seated, meaning being settled, firmly situated, immovable, carries the idea that that nothing will hinder you from where you stand. It's the basic idea of being steadfast, but with greater intensity. intensity. These two words of being steadfast and immovable describe being just motionless, being in one place. Now, is Paul talking about doctrine? Is Paul saying don't move from the doctrine of the Lord's resurrection? Or is Paul saying because Christ is risen, be steadfast in serving God. Don't move. Don't sway from living for Christ. I believe the latter. I believe that's what Paul is saying. Don't move from serving God, from the gospel ministry, from serving the church. Why? The context of verse 58 compels us to believe that. Paul here is talking about our being moved away from God's work. Don't get distracted away from the Lord's work. Don't forget your mission in life. Don't get bogged down with thin things. 
Don't let the worries of life, worries of finance, anxieties of this world cloud you away, move you away from the work of serving God, living for Christ. You know, Peter Smith has a model for that. He said, cut the fat off. Cut the fat off. Be immovable. Be at work, busy, serving God. It's the idea of hunkering down. It's the idea of entrenching yourself for the long haul for the work of the ministry. It is a clarion call for believers not to be tossed here and there by winds of doctrine and trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But it's a call for believers to be ever at work preaching the gospel, serving the church, living to please God. Gordon Clark gives a helpful paraphrase. He writes, Therefore, we should mortify emotion, be steadfast, unchangeable, not erratic, not scatterbrained, not easily discouraged, and should multiply our good works in the knowledge that the Lord will make them profitable. End quote. I believe when someone is steadfast in ministry, it reveals their faith in the res- resurrection of Christ. When a person is not steadfast in ministry, it reveals the weakness of their faith. Where little trial, little discouragement, and their MIA, they're missing. For a few hours, for a few days, for a few weeks, for a few months, they're gone. They're not steadfast, they're not immovable. In fact, they're scatterbrained all over the place. When a Christian believes in the resurrection of Christ, day in and day out, week in and week out, through years of people rejecting the gospel, through discouragements, trials, persecutions, through anxieties, through all fears, have no influence on a Christian's work who believes in the victorious Christ. That's the first application the resurrection of Christ. The second part is like it, but a little different. The second part of the exhortation is that we are always to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul says, be steadfast and movable. Always abounding in God's work. Abounding carries the idea of exceeding the requirements. Right? Idea of, man, you're overdoing it. Right? That's too much. You're overflowing. What are, we sh- what are we to be overflowing in? In the work of God. Pastor MacArthur writes, quote, What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of the world? Christians who think, how can we take it easy? Why should we think such thoughts when so many around us are dead spiritually? And when so many fellow believers are in need of edification and encouragement of every sort, end quote. How can a Christian ever say, I've served my time, I've done my part, let others do the work now? No. We are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. We are to be overdoing it. Where our people, our friends, our co-workers, our family members are saying, man, that's too much. You're serving God. You're preaching the gospel too much. 
that ought, that ought to be our reputation, our testimony. Let me ask you, on Easter Sunday, Christ rose from the grave. As you sit here this morning, what is your heart cry? And what do you make time for? What do you wake up early to do, stay up late to do? What are you immersed in? The Bible says, because we're but pilgrims, because Christ raised, we're not made for this earth. We're made for the city of God, built not with man's hands, but the hands of God. We are to be immersed in the gospel ministry and giving the gospel out to the world. Well, God gives us one added encouragement. I love this, especially in light of our trip. God says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Our work is not canon. God is telling us we are on the winning team and that our contribution will be fruitful, that God will moderately use us for His purposes. You know, Tim Coyle served in England for four and a half years with very little visible fruit. The church that he left had three believers. There were many Sundays when no believers came. He's starting in Ireland, starting all over again. With the human eye, maybe work is in vain. What have you accomplished, Tim? Not much fruit there, visible fruit. Peter Smith, five years of toiling in Czech Republic, he has less than a handful of believers in the church. You know, our ministry here, we're just starting out. We're just beginning to reach out to the lost. Well, in the word's eye, Maybe our labor is in vain, but not in the sight of Christ. Not in vain. Because of the resurrection of Christ, our labor is not in vain. In vain. May we this morning pursue and know the power of Christ's resurrection. Because Christ's resurrection is so real, it is so vivid in our mind's eye, because it is so true to us, may we know that power by living a transformed life, by living a life for Christ's kingdom, for eternity. May we know the power of the Lord's resurrection on this Easter Sunday. Let's pray. It is indeed a horrible thought to think of the implications of Christ not rising from the grave. It puts us in our place, reminds us of our woeful state before our salvation, without a hope, with judgment upon us, and awaiting us nothing but the judgment of God. But Lord, we rejoice this morning because Christ is raised. Our faith is not in vain. The gospel is truth. And our sins are forgiven. Lord, may this truth be so powerful in us that it will result in lives of where we are steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, trusting and believing and knowing in your resurrection. 
Lord, we rejoice today. Our hearts are stirred by the noble theme of your resurrection. May we long for your bodily return. But until that day, Lord, be ever at work proclaiming this truth to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, if we could have the ushers.